Greetings, everyone. Hello to all of our guests. What I'm about to tell you proves that there is no such thing as Christian justice in this world. Many years ago up in Iowa, there was a farmer who had been burglarized many different times. He grew very tired of it, and so finally, in desperation, even though he was going to take a trip away from his farmhouse, which had been broken into and ransacked on numerous occasions, he decided to put up a series of signs beginning all the way from his outer gate up to his home, burglars beware, this house is booby-trapped, beware of the dog, beware of the owner, beware of the gun, if you enter this house I will shoot you, and other such signs, one after another, so that anyone coming into their property would be given not one warning but seven or eight or ten. He went away, and while he was gone, a burglar disdainful of all the signs, broke down the front door and was promptly shot in the legs with a shotgun. Because the absentee farmer had wired a double-barreled shotgun with some double-aught buck or something in it to two chairs and aimed at the front door. The man opened up the door and got a blast of shotgun fire for his pains. Later on, recovering in the prison hospital, the wounded burglar sued the farmer and won and took away his farm. And the farmer went completely bankrupt and became destitute and had no further money or source of income. I was discussing that with a neighbor going out to dinner recently, and he told me of one that was almost as bizarre, of which he knew personally. A man stole an automobile, was driving around in it, had a wreck, was injured, and sued the owner of the automobile for having bad brakes, and won, and won. Now, I know in a bizarre way we're tempted to laugh, and I am too, but it's a kind of a helpless laugh, isn't it? It's not really a laugh of humor, but that is funny, because if you were the recipient of something like that, you wouldn't really know how to handle it. Years and years ago, when I was first converted, and I had repented of so many things that I had done, not the least of which was my four years in the Navy, which resulted in these abominable tattoos on my arms and the kind of language that I used, which is commonly the language that I hear on the golf course these days. I had been away from that kind of language, that kind of verbal blasphemy, for literally several years. The little cocoon in which we found ourselves in Ambassador College was a very protected environment. And we would go back and forth to the Feast of Tabernacles, taking our little ones when they were small. And, of course, we're constantly with God's people. We were there in the college. We were in the church. We were right on the campus. We lived and worked there, and we ate and slept and walked and talked with the people who were right there as a part of God's church. We caravanned over to Big Sandy with our babies in the back. I'll never forget, my wife knows what I'm leading up to. We were in some little town in Arizona, and I had a flat tire, and we had to get it repaired. And it had been about three years, I think, since we had been in the church and the college, and I was already being asked to begin to bring sermonettes at the Feast of Tabernacles. We had to have the tire repaired, and the man who was working on the tire with the old tire iron, he didn't have modern equipment, wrapped his hand or smashed his thumb. And when he did, he blurted out the name of Christ in a curse. I actually subconsciously stepped back from that man, had to distance myself from him, because all of a sudden I was so shocked at what he had said that it was miraculous to me that he yet lived. 
You see, I mean, I had by this time read what God did to Uzzah. I had seen what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And I was aware that the God that I worship is a very powerful, all-wise, everywhere-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God, and had the power to literally smash that man like a bug. And I was sort of amazed that lightning didn't strike at that moment. It was a kind of a lesson to me because little by little I had to kind of come back to an awareness of what was going on, that in spite of the fact that I had been inside a very sheltered environment, the world hadn't really changed all that much. I want to tell you that the times in which we live are very strongly indicative that Satan's wrath is beginning, that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, as is the title of one book by a famous religious leader. In 2 Timothy, the third chapter, we see portrayed exactly the kind of a day in which we live today. It was mentioned that there is crime in England, as well as a lot of crime in this country, in the Sermonette, and that wherever you go, you cannot escape it. And this portrayal of the way people generally are is certainly right on in today's news. This know also in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, but there's plenty of the unnatural kind, truce breakers, you can't depend on them, their word is no good, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, especially in the peer group at certain age levels, whether you're talking about preschool, the sixth grade, sophomores in high school or college. The straight shooter used to be a person who was square, that is, he was squarely out of debt, he would give you a square deal, and you could depend upon his word. But now he is, you know, meaning ridiculous, you don't want to be square, or he is straight, meaning he probably doesn't have a real weird haircut, and he's not mainlining crack or something, he's not snorting drugs, he's not off uh, robbing little old ladies or killing people. But back in the 30s and 40s, the pendulum had swung to the other extreme, and that's all it really does. It just swings back and forth from one extreme to another, so that in the days just before and during World War II, the nation experienced a kind of a renaissance of the Protestant work ethic and of honesty and integrity to a certain degree. Now, of course, we're going back to the opposite extreme a little more. The dictionary defines blasphemy as, and I quote, abuse of or contempt for God or sacred things, cursing or reviling God, speaking or writing about God or sacred things with abuse or contempt. Now that man who smashed his thumb and cursed the name of God probably is living still. If something hasn't come along to simply cause him to die of disease, let's go back to Leviticus 24 and verse 10 and take a look at what God's law originally said about this sin of blasphemy. Leviticus 24 and verse 10, And the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Eternal and cursed. Now, it was probably a very long argument. It had to do with the gods of Egypt and the real god, who was Elohim or Yahweh. And the two of them got very heated in their exchange until finally the son of the Egyptian became so angry, he cursed the name of the god of the Hebrew. 
So they brought him unto Moses, and his mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Dibri, the tribe of Dan. They put him in ward that the mind of the Eternal might be showed them, because this was something with which they were unfamiliar. They had not yet dealt with the problem of someone who would simply openly blaspheme the name of God. And the Eternal spoke unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that is cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. So it was personal, up-close identification. They didn't just sit in a courtroom and say, It is the defendant sitting over there. Silently, one by one, they walked up in front of the congregation and its leaders and laid their hands on him and made positive identification. Thus, they were a definite participant in what was about to occur, knowing full well that false witness meant they could be stoned to death as well. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemes the name of the Eternal, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land. Doesn't matter what language they speak, what kind of culture, society from which they come, or religion. When he blasphemes the name of the Eternal, he shall be put to death. That penalty has never changed. It's still the same. The only difference is that in our society, this is not a theocracy, so that our court system does not carry out such a penalty. You know, you'd be surprised if you'd go back, and oftentimes we'll see an article dealing with some of the old laws that are still carried on the books of certain communities or even state or federal laws, that in some communities you can go to jail for spitting on the street. They don't enact it, they don't enforce it, but many of those old laws are still there. There are laws on the law books that actually preclude cursing or using profanity in public. And people anciently were put in the stocks so that they were a public source of ridicule in the public square with their hands and their feet and their heads sticking out from a wooden kind of a yoke, and they just locked them up and let them sit there all day with a kind of a card there that told everyone what they had done. Now, that seems to be cruel and unusual punishment to our ultra-liberal way of looking at things today. The idea that you would actually put someone to death for a crime or a sin is just abhorrent to most human beings. I dealt very recently in a sermon with our very great propensity for congratulating ourselves about having divine qualities, which we like to call humanitarian. And so in our great boastful congratulatory vanity, we say that we are humane, and we even have a humane society for the treatment of animals. We would not think of causing a murderer who stabbed, as Richard Speck did, ten terrified nurses to death with a bloody butcher knife, one after another, whimpering, begging for their lives, as he stalked them in a room up in Chicago and systematically butchered and stabbed and hacked and cut them to bits. The idea that you would pull a switch and cause him to have volts of electricity jolting through his body to kill him is just beyond our humanitarianism or that you would hang him, or that you would, better yet, stab him about 37 times, commencing at his legs. I don't want to be too terribly grotesque here with what might eventually be conceived of as 
really paying for his crime. But we now have devised a system where they simply take sodium pentothal in larger amounts than your body can handle and peacefully put them to sleep. Put in the IV and they know nothing else. In the same way that your poor little dog, if it becomes so grievously injured or sick, would be, as they say, put to sleep. And we call that humanitarianism. God did not treat Sodom and Gomorrah that way, did he? He burnt them to a frazzle. They suffered the pain of Gehenna fire. He wiped out a couple of cities of hundreds of thousands of population, possibly. I'm not sure how large they were. But he showed exactly what he thinks of homosexuality. Time and time again, God's prophets down through history have prayed, Why doth the wicked prosper? And David prayed, How long, O Eternal? And Jeremiah, in the Jeremiad of Lamentations, lamented, as he said, the tears streaming down his cheeks because of the evil that he saw. And we hear in Proverbs that because the wicked are not speedily punished, it is just absolutely set in the hearts of man to do evil with a certain amount of greed and determination. People have wrestled with that for literally millennia as to why God does not interfere and intervene instantly to punish that kind of evil, especially evil of that incredible, enormous amount. Let's go to Ezekiel, the 20th chapter, and show you what one prophet was led to say about this state of affairs. Ezekiel 20. This is really an, a lengthy chapter, so I won't read it all, but it recounts the entire calling of Israel. God telling them exactly what had happened from the time that he called them out of Egypt. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord Eternal, In the day when I chose Israel and lifted up mine hand unto the seat of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Eternal your God. I had espied from them, the last of verse 6, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. And I said, Cast away, every man, the abominations of your eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Eternal your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. And did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, nor forsake the idols of Egypt? And then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish mine anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. And I wrought for my name's sake. There's a proverb that talks about a man's name, that a good name is to be desired above riches. Your name is not only who you are, it is what you are, and it also involves your reputation. God has many names. He is El Shaddai. He is Yahweh Nissai, God our shield and banner and protector. He is the Lord of hosts, Eloah Shabaoth. He is Elohim, which is a plural name for God. He is the eternal, the ever-living, the creator. He is Yahweh Rofika, God our healer. He has many titles, many names, all of which portray what he is, what he does, how he acts. We're familiar with the song, How Great Thou Art. I'm here to tell you that belief in God is not a doctrine. It is not something you put down in a piece of paper or have as a note and you say, I believe as a recital of a creed that there is one God, as the Catholics and the Episcopalians do. Belief in God is not a doctrine. It is merely the way things are. It happens to be a fact. There's nothing you can do about it. There is a God. There he is. 
And here you are. And you can prove the existence of God by chemistry, by all the physical sciences, by symbiosis, by human life, by archaeology, by biblical history, but especially the seven proofs that we have isolated, and there are literally hundreds, of Almighty God, of kind begetting kind, of life from life, of the design that we see about us, not only in everything with regard to the magnetic fields of the earth and even nuclear fission and energy and the cleavage properties of minerals, minerals that I mentioned and the symbiosis between which came first, the simple little honeybee or the flowering herbs and flowers and fruit trees and so on, or the chicken or the egg or what have you, but all the other proofs that there is an all-wise great life giver who actually put man upon this earth and every other creature that exists on the face of the earth. Anyone who loves and revels in a gorgeous, beautiful, lovely morning at sunrise, who sees a little hummingbird at a feeder outside his window, who sees a nature film with a huge, great blue whale spouting in the Arctic and diving to eat krill, or who sees the creatures at the bottom of the sea, or sees leaping dolphins, or watches the birth of a child, or as a farm child might see the birth of a little calf, or sees a little wobbly fawn stand up and go immediately to nurse at its mother for the first moment. There are so many hundreds of ways in which we can not only stand in awe of all that God has produced, but continually resupport our absolute conviction that He is, that He does live, that He is up there and we are down here. David, when he was very ashamed of himself, called himself a worm. I am no man but a maggot. I'm no man but a worm. You've heard the story of the woman who said, Look, dear, as she sat strapped into the seat near the window of a jetliner, those people are so small they look like ants. And her husband said, They are ants, honey. We have not taken off as yet. But the story merely, merely illustrates the fact that I've flown many, many times in aircraft of all different types that you cannot see sometimes even individual buildings at 41,000 feet. Everything is a complete blur. They said that in satellites, and those that had gone up a couple of hundred miles above the earth, the only one thing they ever photographed, and this was not with the spy satellites that have such resolution that they claim they can read a cigarette package in your shirt, but they said the only thing that they could portray when they were coming back from the, the moon from way out there in space was that somewhere there was a very straight road in one of our western states where there was a huge blanket of snow and a bulldozer had gone through and plowed the road and it was the only thing that they could actually see on this gorgeous blue planet in its so fragile ecosystem which portrayed that there was life upon it. All the men who went to the moon had a profound religious experience. And every one of them, and I just recently saw another NASA film because they're getting all hyped and excited now about the possibility of the launching of another orbital flight, of course, when Discovery is to be launched in some months later on in this year if they get through with all the problems, continually said that looking at this Earth from that vast distance, at this beautiful blue-white planet, at how small it is in the blackness of the universe, was such a profound experience to them of realizing how fragile it is and how precious it is that it was just moving beyond their ability to describe their feelings. And I think in some way by seeing the pictures they brought back, 
I think that was what we were seeing. There somewhere is a display, and I think it's a static display as well as perhaps audiovisual, but I think a lot of the pictures that the astronauts themselves have taken is now in a museum somewhere where you can go see like Earth rise over the surface of the moon, and it's just staggeringly beautiful to be able to see. So when we see and experience these things, you youngsters are going to go up into the mountains in New Mexico. I have never failed in my more than 30-some years of having an opportunity to go backpacking or hunting, which I do at least twice a year, to get up into those high mountains, see the awesomeness of a distant thunderstorm, and hope it stays distant. Uh, if you feel any prickling on the back of your skin or your neck or your hair, uh, get away from trees and kneel down. Do not lie down flat. You don't want that much of your body touching the surface in case you're not aware of that. Crouch. If you got metal, get rid of it. If you're carrying metal or anything metal is around you, walk away from it. But anyway, you'll know all that. But the awesomeness of some of those gigantic electrical storms really does get your attention. When lightning is crackling around on ridges within a half mile of you, and we've crouched up there many a time in just small brush, not a big tree, and in kind of a low area, not a high area, and watch that lightning smashing around among the rocks and trees, It'll really get your attention. But to me, even the fragile little wildflowers, and there are thousands of them, and little tiny trout running away from you in a little rivulet or a brook, and of course the enormously beautiful sunrises and sunsets and the vastness of those mountains is a reaffirmation every year when I go up there of the majesty and the greatness of God. When I look at the awesome majesty of God and realize that in His sight, I am smaller than a flea on a tiny little dog's leg. And then to think that a human being who is so tiny, it is so staggering that a flea could ridicule a giant. When the giant can step on the flea, that it just boggles my mind. How can a man ridicule his source of life? that gives him every grain of food that he ever puts in his mouth, every glass of fresh, beautiful water, every good, sweet breath of air, every pulsating beat of his heart with that fantastic chemical mixture of fluids we call blood that is carrying life to every little capillary in his body. How can a man ridicule the God who gives him life? It's a sin which I don't understand. And yet it is a sin I used to commit. When I was a young, smart aleck kid, I regularly took God's name in vain. Thank God for His grace, His boundless mercy, that He forgave me, not just once, but many, many times, too many to count, of having taken His name in vain. The Apostle Paul said, I am not fit to be called an apostle. I am the least of the apostles, for I persecuted the church and caused them to blaspheme. Do you know that the ultimate success that the apostle Paul, who then was named Saul, was trying to achieve when he actually tortured people because of the Christian religion, was to hear them as he would cackle with a demoniacal laugh of satisfaction, curse God before they died in torture. He said, I, who before was injurious and a blasphemer, and yet he said that he had achieved forgiveness. Now, does that not make God even greater than you may have originally thought? How 
many of us have a certain number of beliefs, a religious doctrinal system. We go to the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. We feel good about that. That's a spiritual high. We go or we come here to the Passover and we wash one another's feet, take a little wine, a little bread, and that's a spiritual high. It's an awesome, almost frightening ceremony. We come on a weekly Sabbath to church. We do certain things. We do not do other things. We do not eat pork. We do not eat possums and skunks and lizards and rattlesnakes. We do not eat some of these shell foods and seafoods that uh, God says are not fit and not clean. We do all these things. But year in and year out, if we still have in the back of our minds certain prejudices, racism, resentment against other people, jealousies against people we know who perhaps have more or look better than we do, people against whom we have certain grudges because of slights or injury in the past, and we could suddenly see them walking toward us and all of those old scars would be opened up and we would suddenly see this person as an enemy, if our heart has not yet totally been cleansed, then all of this doing and all of this believing does us no good whatsoever. Because Jesus Christ of Nazareth said to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. To him overcoming our human nature, growing in grace and knowledge, is, believe it or not, more important than doctrine because he says the last shall be first. There are going to be many, many people inducted into the kingdom of God who are the 144,000 and a great countless, numer uh, should say, innumerable multitude, and they're called that in the book of Revelation, 7th chapter, a numberless crowd of people who are going to repent and to know God is there and I am here. He really exists. He really is great and awesome and powerful, and I was unaware of it, but now I see it. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes, as Job said, when he said, I have heard of thee with the hearing of my ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. And the thing these people are going to receive is protection, the sealing of God's Holy Spirit, and induction in a matter of months or perhaps a year or so at the most into God's kingdom, and yet they will not have had an entire lifetime of going through a Christian routine. They will not have attended 30 or 40 feasts, or 20 or 16. They will not have gone to about 14 Passovers. They will not have gone to several thousand Sabbath services. But they will have repented, and they'll realize God is great, and He is awesome, and He is good and wonderful, and I am a filthy, rotten nothing, not fit to be scraped from the bottom of a garbage can. And when they come to that realization, God can then begin to work with them. He's after unconditional surrender. I told people recently in one of my campaign sermons that the German and Japanese people could not believe their ears when they heard that Harry Truman adopted the same policy of Roosevelt and Churchill. They had assumed when Roosevelt died that there would be some lessening in the demands of the Western Allies and that perhaps the Germans could sue for peace and there was something afoot through individuals inside the neutral country of Switzerland to that effect. As a matter of fact, the German Secret Service, which was utilized by the Americans when they occupied Germany to actually gather data against the communists, was of the notion, and were literally telling this to the OKW and some of the German high command, that very likely the Western Allies would use 
large numbers, maybe 20-some divisions of Wehrmacht soldiers under arms to join with the Western Allies and turn around and finish the job they'd started against Moscow. There were rumors rampant throughout the German high command that there was a good chance that the Western Allies would use German troops together with them to crush communism and the Soviet Union. And they were shocked, they were devastated when they discovered that Harry Truman adopted the policy of unconditional surrender. Do you know that Almighty God demands nothing less? He will not accept conditional surrender. Mr. Dart wrote a personal about no strings attached. It had more to do with giving. But it's the same principle. You cannot have strings attached to your tithing or your giving. You do not give it based upon, I will give this if God will do thus and such. It is complete giving bereft of any strings attached. But the same thing is true of giving yourself to God. It must be unconditional surrender. Here I am. I'm worth nothing, less than nothing. I'm grievous and injurious and have been a blasphemer, as Paul said. But if you can use this worthless hunk of flesh to your honor and glory in some way or another, please use me if you can. But that is only when a person comes to real, total repentance. Well, God says through Ezekiel, verse 11, I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Eternal, that doth sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They didn't walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live. He lives and prospers. He benefits in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. And then I said I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Important verse. Think about it. Read it again. He says here that the reason he wrested those rebellious, stiff-necked Israelites out of Egypt was not so much out of his feelings of compassion and tenderness toward them because he'd even proposed to Moses, let me alone, I'm going to destroy them and I'll raise up out of you a great nation. And Moses went to the wall, so to speak, the horns of the altar, so to speak, and said, oh, don't do that, and began to reason with God and say, what will the heathen say? The heathen will say, their own God turned on them, and your name will be defamed. And God changed his mind. The Bible says repented himself, meaning he completely changed his mind based upon Moses' prayer, or God proposed, not lightly, because he does not threaten lightly, but proposed to destroy Israel and to then raise up a new nation and start the whole plan of God through Moses and his progeny. I wrought, meaning he broke the economic and military back of Egypt, all of the plagues that finally resulted in Pharaoh letting the people go, for my reputation's sake, my name's sake, because of who and what he is, that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, and that older generation did not enter flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments, and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbaths, and their heart went after their idols. Continually, God repeats that theme throughout this chapter. 
A little later on, in verse 31, he says of these people, when you offer your gifts, when you make your sons to pass through the fire, if you can imagine infant sacrifice, they descended into that incredible insanity of literally offering their own children to a pagan god. That is how low humankind can think. You pollute yourselves with all your idols, even unto this day, and shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of you. But that which comes into your mind shall not be at all, that you say, We will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and stretched out arm and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. In verse 38, he says, I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me and will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn and they shall not enter into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the eternal. God says, finally, you will remember, verse 43, in captivity in total des desolation and destruction. You will there remember your ways, all your doings wherein you have been defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Eternal, when I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O you house of Israel, saith the Lord Eternal." There's a great deal in the Bible on blasphemy. Just this morning, and in the last couple of days in researching for this sermon, I read every scripture in the Bible where that word, in all of its various forms, blaspheme, blasphemy, blasphemous, and so on, is used. Over in Matthew 12 and 22, Jesus Christ healed a person and was accused of doing so by Satan. If you read through verse 37, verse 22 through 37, I won't turn to it, Jesus Christ made it very clear that the context in which he stated his warning about the unpardonable sin was that he said, By your word shall you be condemned, by your word shall you be justified, and by your word shall you be condemned, and that every man is going to give account for every idle word. Then, of course, he went to great lengths to show that the word comes out of something that is deeper. It comes out of the heart. It's merely a vehicle of speech that expresses what you think. And if these Jews were accusing him of doing a miraculous, wonderful, beneficial miracle to alleviate suffering and pain, to heal a grotesquely distorted limb, to give someone life, to let them hear, to let them see, and then to accuse him of doing it by the spirit of Satan, he said that they were in danger of Gehenna fire. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8, and I think I at least touched on this briefly, the Apostle Paul could never forget some of the sins that he himself had committed. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 8. He said, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing that this that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their own dad, those who would slay their own mother, for those who kill indiscriminately other human beings, for those who creep into whores, for those who are perverts who defile themselves with those of the same sex, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there's anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who has enabled me 
for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. And that was always an awesome fact to Paul that never failed to humble him because he said, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. But once you believe, beware of ever blaspheming again. There was a little escape clause that a lot of people used to use years ago that I would like to erase from your mind. They would say, oh, well, I'm not a baptized member yet. And it seemed to be that as long as they were not a baptized member, they weren't old enough, they had been holding back, they had a job problem on the Sabbath, they hadn't made the commitment to go all the way to baptism. Therefore, whatever sins they committed would not really be requited. It wouldn't be a part of their ledger, their record that they're writing up there above. They could basically just lump it all together, and when it was time to repent, well, that was sort of included. No, but the Bible very clearly says, To him that knoweth to do right, and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. And that you are responsible up to and including the exact degree which Almighty God knows of your awareness of right from wrong. I don't care what's your age. I don't care what your degree of commitment. I don't care whether you have delayed or put off or never even considered baptism. If you know, you are responsible. It will be laid exactly to your door. In 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3, is a very important scripture to read because many people are all confused about the Antichrist. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, that is, that he is able to take up residence within your mind and your heart, that he is able to live his life over again within you, not only the dual meaning that he was here as a fleshly human being, God in the flesh, but that he is also able to take up residence in your life, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come. And even now, already, back then, 90-something, or maybe 60 or 70-something A.D., it is in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you, re-supporting what I just said, than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Years ago, I preached a sermon on the subject of the real Jesus because I knew that the Jesus Christ, quote-unquote, that is worshipped by this world is not the real Jesus Christ of the Bible, of biblical literature at all, but a false Christ who is actually Satan the devil masquerading by that name. Millions of people are deceived, and they simply do not know that. We live in the age of blasphemy. Don't you know that it says that the great fallen church with all of her false harlot daughters is a woman which has in her cup filthiness and names of blasphemy? Do you not really follow along in your mind to realize that there are thousands of so-called Christians who every time they pronounce the name of God or of Christ are in fact blaspheming 
because they are not pronouncing the name of the real God or Jesus Christ at all, but are ascribing to the real God and to Jesus Christ a way of life, doctrines, beliefs, practices, precepts, creeds, concepts, a way of life which is not God's Word at all, but completely false doctrines of Satan the devil, doctrines of demons. It says in Revelation, the 16th chapter, and I want to turn to that. This is one of the most surprising, perhaps, in all of the Bible, that you cannot cause certain men to repent even by physical pain and suffering. Here is the picture of the pouring out of God's wrath, which he describes as the winepress of God's wrath. In the 14th chapter, you see a dual harvest of the earth. The harvest of the grapes that are fully ripe, which is the harvest of God's salvation. And then a second harvest, which is the cluster of grapes, meaning it's merely a metaphor for the harvesting of grapes in a vineyard, which is the harvesting of God's wrath upon those who richly deserve the outpouring of the seven last plagues. I heard a voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways, chapter 16, verse 1, and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So they pour it out upon those who worship the beast in his image. And I'll skip along a little bit now in verse 8. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun. Now we're experiencing a terrible drought. But we're dealing here with heat that will probably be 140 or so in the shade. We're dealing here with a kind of a heat that would literally blister a man. It would just instantaneously cause his blood to begin to boil. Where they got to screech with pain. And men were scorched with great heat. And what do they do? and blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues, and repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the very headquarters, the capital city, of where the beast and the false prophet are living. And his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. What is the solution then? If they do not repent after they have seen all the great tribulation, after they have witnessed the heavenly signs and prayed for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of him that sitteth on the throne, and finally are experiencing now blistering, scalding heat and carbuncles and boils and horrible things on their own bodies, and yet they still curse God. Why, there's only one solution. Kill them. And that's exactly what God is going to do. Mankind wants an orgy, and man is going to get an orgy. God is going to lead this world towards an orgy of destruction eventually because of sin, because of pogroms of genocide, because of drugs, because of crime of every sort, because of abandonment, desertion, and divorce, because of child and infant molestation, because of kidnapping because of every unspeakable, filthy crime that a human being can do to cause suffering and wretched anguish of heart to another human being, but mostly of all because of blasphemy against his great, pure holiness and his powerful name. God has had it, clear up to here, with man's rotten blasphemy.